0: So I wanted to share with you, I won't just do a a full testimony, but I wanted to share with you just some things that have been on my heart um, as it relates to those communities that you saw there. Um, As Brother Josiah said, we've been blessed to be a part of the um, Montana Fellowship here for the last five or six years. Um, So it's been an incredible journey. And uh, when you said that about Brother Webb, about uh, building a 30,000 square foot, building um brother matthew will actually try it so (laughs) got to be careful what (laughs) we just got done with our fair this past weekend and um had about 900 people come through and we've been very busy as a community um over the last few months we've been pulling together more of a craft village there we have a ranch and uh, have a, a grist mill that we opened up last year And um, we just wanted, we felt like we were supposed to take a a big step forward. And uh, we have taken a very big step. So we've pulled together a little market uh, that we sank down 12 feet into the ground. Uh, The brothers have been doing barn raisings for a long time, but this was their first barn sinking. Um, (laughs) And then Brother Matthew said, but this is gonna be an educational center. It's gonna be a place of higher education. I said, Brother Matthew, it's a place of lower education. (laughs) So, um, but we've completed our little market underground. And that little market goes to an underground greenhouse. And above all that, we have a little craft barn and um, folks just from all over the country have been coming through. We're right there on I-90 and uh, everywhere, Florida, Seattle, New York, Arizona, they're just coming through. Um, So it's been incredible to be a part of that. Um, Made me think of this scripture and I'll just read it just to get started. It's from um, the book of Micah. And it says, uh, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and many peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Amen. And we, we have seen this happening in our own little community. I, I think you can get the the sense that that's happening all over the world (laughs) and somehow we were a part of this Um, you know the lord spoke to us um, as i'm sure he's doing through all these little satellite communities it was last year um, and we just had this sense we are in uh, wheat country but that verse there where jesus tells the um, his disciples he says uh, don't don't say that there's was it three months Four months, and then, then the harvest. He says, Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. And uh, as a little group, little group, we felt the, the Spirit speaking to us. And uh, we actually had a little work day after that. And we went out to work on, in the field. And uh, just that day, these four Mormon boys were driving by. They pull over, they jump over the fence and say, Can we join y'all and, and participate in what you're doing? And, and we had such a wonderful time of connection, looking for as much common ground as we possibly could. But, you know, they felt something. They felt something. They saw something. And um, then just earlier this year, we felt God reiterating it really prophetically to us. He said, behold, I set before you an open door. And, and that's a passage from Revelation, the, the uh, church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And I set before you an open door that no man can shut. And so we feel such an anticipation. (laughs) We feel such a sense of hope that what we're a part of is is going to continue to grow. It's going to reach out. And people from all nations are going to say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So, um, as I was saying, uh, my first experience, my wife and I had, had come to God, had a really powerful experience with God back in the early 90s, um, but by the late 90s, as many Christians will, will tell you, you start saying, okay, God, what, what's next? What's more? I, I think we've tried to take every step we know, um, but my wife and I had felt very much that God wanted us to launch into a big family. And um, maybe he hasn't told you that, but he I, I felt like he spoke to me to have a family, so in about family, so in about four years, I think we had what eight kids or something. I don't we, we, I'm not very good with math, but I, it was it, it was something like that and um, so we we launched off into having having kids. And, um, it was great. Honestly, if you haven't tried it, (laughs) it was wonderful. Um, but what we realized really quick was, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we were way over our head. And so we, that was part of God's dealing in our life. That's just how he led us to help us to see that we actually needed something more than what we had. And by providence, uh, God, and we were crying out by the time, what did we have five? I think we were crying out, God, we do not know what we're doing. <laughs> it was pretty obvious. And just at that time, uh, we came into connection with the, the fellowship here where there are many, many fathers who have been raising families bigger than I did and doing very well at it. So it was God's provision for us to, to bring us into connection But we were one of those people who said we need somebody to teach us his ways. And um, we've been learning his ways ever since. And that was about, I think, 15 years ago. honey. Um, So um, what I want to do is I'll just share a little bit about, um, I guess, the the feeling I have is my first encounter with the fellowship. Our need had gotten so great for somebody to help us. Um, we really longed for community. What you saw there in those pictures, we longed for it. We needed help with our kids. And, um, and so God, we knew he had, he had, he had provided for us. And if you're, wherever you are in your journey, I will tell you this. If you seek God with all your heart, he will answer you. Amen. Whatever your need is, wherever you are, if you cry out to God regardless of your background he will come and he will start showing you steps that you can start taking and uh, we've been doing that Um, but you know my my experience there was so radical that um, I was only there I was only at the community in in Waco for a few days and it had such an impact on me that um, I even to this day I start I I look back and I reflect on it I said God what was going on there? I mean, I, I went home and I, I could only last in my job for a few weeks. And I said, God, I've got to change my, my whole work situation. And I, and I, am not saying that's what everybody's got to do, but for me, it was, I had gotten to that place of, oh, I got to make changes in my life. And, and then I, and then I, um, we started restructuring our whole family And, um, and so it, it it was having such an impact on, on every area of our life that I also, I I often say, God, what was going on there? How does that happen? And then, you know, a few years later, Kim and I felt we're we're supposed to just go down and be a part of this. So we packed up in a van and we drove across country and maybe you've done that before, but that was pretty, for us, it was pretty radical. And so I, I reflect back and I say, God, what was it you were doing there? What was going on in our lives? And what, what, uh, what, what is it that we saw that impacted us so much? What is it that we felt that so impacted us? And if I could understand what that is, um, maybe I could continue to be a part of it and help provide that for other people. And, and maybe I could even help as an older brother, I'm getting older now, just to make sure that this this city on a hill stays what it's called to be and doesn't lose that impact power (laughs) that it had on my life. So what what I'll do is I'm just gonna share one little piece of something I felt like God showed me um, that that, um, was part of what I saw and what I felt. So um, how many people here uh, like to go camping? Okay, be honest. How many people here really like to go camping? <laughs> Why do you go camping? Well, the reality is every time I've gone camping, it has downpoured. Um, I have ended up sleeping on at least two or three rocks that I didn't realize were there until two in the morning. Uh, the tent usually collapses somewhere in the night. Um, haven't been attacked by a bear, but that's always possible. Uh, there is no bathroom. Uh, all those things. And, and so people, when my wife and I first got married, we, we went camping a lot. And people would ask us, why are you doing that? And um, what we realized is, and you may relate to this, it's not so much uh, what you're, what you're um, getting, but it's what you're getting away from it 's what what you 're stepping out of really that that inspires you to truck through the mountains and get bit by by mosquitoes and black flies and and uh, all those wonderful things there 's something about just getting away from the noise There's something about getting away from the the busyness there 's something about getting away from uh, all the pollution of lights all the Um, all the activities that keep you so distanced from some sort of sense that there's this transcendent God. And so what we have found is that for everything that the community of God, the body of Christ is presenting, (laughs) providing, it actually is providing a place where there's an absence, where there's certain things that have actually been removed out of the way. Boy, when you, when you remove the lights from the city and you start seeing the stars, you say, wow, that's incredible. You start removing the honking of the horns and the cars and you get out and you start hearing birds and you start hearing rivers. And you say, oh, I didn't hear that. That's incredible. Amen. And so what, what I have found looking back at my experiences, I say, God, it's as much as what was not there as it is as what was there. And so um, I just feel like, God, we've got to be very careful to make sure certain things don't creep in. Certain light pollutions don't creep in. And next thing you know, you're not seeing the stars anymore. Certain sounds moving in. Next thing you know, you're not hearing the birds anymore. And so it's our responsibility to make sure that the mountain of the Lord is preserved and that we can can experience it. I know uh, last year it was... Uh, you might have had a similar deal. Was it really smoky here last year? Uh, last year in Montana, it—I it, don't remember when it started. I think it was mid-June, the forest fires, and my goodness, by the end of August, it was so smoky. <laughs> was it here? It was so smoky. I mean, I just—I really said, "Honey, I think we got to get out of here. I think we got—I can't really breathe." And I'll never forget that day when that rain came down, that, that first rain came down and it just knocked all that dust out of the air. And, um, I remember the feeling of just breathing in and say, ah, this feels good. And so the feeling wasn't so much what was there, but what had been removed out of the way. So I'm just going to identify, uh, one or two things about what God is removing out of the way. So what did I see? What did I feel? Well, Matthew 5, 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And um, I would say that my experience, I didn't first meet the community in Virginia or Idaho. I meant it. I met it in central Texas. And I was a New Yorker. So I'm more used to this kind of thing. And yet, I would say that I saw a city on a hill. And if you've ever been to central Texas, as one longtime Texan told me, if you go out to West Texas um, and you stand on your tippy toes, you can see the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> and then if you get a tuna can and you put it down and you step on the tuna can, you can actually see the back of your own head. Sorry, Texas brothers. <laughs> I'm wearing up my welcome very fast here. And so the reality is this hill that we're talking about has nothing to do with geography. And um, there on the plains of central Texas, I saw something that was so distinct, something that was so different, something that was so elevated. And you know what it was? It was a city. It was believers like you and me actually A city, not not just one believer, not just a little church. It was a city. It was daily life. It was coming and going and doing and serving and and making. and, And it was like, it was a whole life. People, Christians working together. And I thought, that is extraordinary. That indeed is something that is very different from what you see in our world. So that's one of the things that greatly impacted me. That there is actually... You can have a city (laughs) and this city can be very different from the rest of the world. Then the feeling, and I think this was even more important to me, the feeling, what was it that had been washed out of the air by the rain? What is it that had been removed out? And um, there's a number of things I could identify, but I just, I wanted to share one thing with you. Um, and then I'll start with every city has a foundation. Would you agree? Every city has a foundation. Every house has a foundation. Every city has a foundation. You know what the foundation of the church is? I'll read Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, Paul said, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Peter had the revelation of Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is blessed. Are you Simon Barjona? Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And uh, Paul told the Ephesians. You have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So first of all, the church has a foundation. And good thing this building has a foundation. You can feel it. But you know, the world that we live in also has a foundation. Do you know what the foundation of the world is? Jesus talked about it. He said, therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Boy, that doesn't sound like a very nice foundation, does it? You think about the church, what an incredible foundation christ the apostles the prophets and that the world around us has this jesus says it has a foundation and it's and it's the from the blood of abel and i'll just read to you real quick there is a um a professor at stanford who says many civilizations and cultures have a founding murder at the root of the whole culture rome Was founded on Romulus murdering his brother Remus. The Bible presents the archetype explanation for these kind of myths. When Cain murders Abel, and then what does he do? Builds a city. city. And so there's a different kind of city that emerged than the city that's on the hill. And it's built on a very different foundation than the foundation of this city on the hill. And I hate to say it, but it's murder. <laughs> Boy, that doesn't sound very encouraging, huh? Why did Cain murder Abel? Envy? Envy, And what was he envious of? That's right. His sacrifice wasn't accepted by who? By God. He didn't have the favor of God. He didn't have the acceptance of God. And, and there was Abel who had it. God smiled on Abel's sacrifice. He accepted it. Cain's wasn't. And so they go off into the field together and Cain murders Abel. And there is this this brotherly tension. There is this this rivalry. There is this competition between the two. And instead of going back and saying, well, okay, let's go make the the right sacrifice. Let's go make it uh, the way it's supposed to be. He goes instead, and in, in anger, he murders his brother. And so Jesus identifies this event as the very foundation of the world, this kind of murder. And, and uh, you know what's going on in the world right now. The violence is unbelievable. Well, it does stem back to a certain kind of foundation, if you look at Joseph and his brothers, they wanted to kill him. Why? It says in Genesis, they were envious of him. Saul and David, it was when they were singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David, his 10 thousands. It says that something had happened, a jealousy in his heart. And from that moment, he he looked for an opportunity to thrust them through to, with a spear. And uh, Jesus You know, I think it was Pilate who said he he realized they're they're handing Jesus over to me because they're envious of him. It's a dynamic that's just in the world. This sense of envy, this sense of competition. It is the very foundation of the world. Amen. Therefore, Jesus would say, beware of covetousness. For life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Beware of this dynamic. It has sunk many, uh, many people who are a lot smarter than I am, <laughs> to put it that way. Okay, but Abraham, Abraham, the father of the faithful. It says, by faith, Abraham... Obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I can relate to that. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. If you read, and we have a book back there, Knowing God by Name, it it talks very much about the city that Abraham was a part of, Ur, and all those dynamics that uh, are built on this kind of foundation of envy, competition, covetousness, greed, and ultimately murder. And um, Abraham, it says, he waited for a city. Something inside of that man hated where he was from. Something inside of that man did not want to be in that type of city built on that kind of foundation. And when he heard the voice saying, Abraham, come out from that. Come out from Ur. I'm going to make something new out of you. It said he waited for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And that word waited... That word waited means to look for, to expect, to tarry for. Abraham tarried for this new city with a new foundation. And it says uh, in Romans, those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, in the presence of him who believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And so Paul says that Abraham actually had an encounter with God. He was in God's presence. Abraham heard a voice somehow through the smoke Somehow, through all the light pollution, maybe there was enough of an agitation with the city that he was in and the foundation that it was on, that somehow he managed to hear this voice piercing through all that. And somehow Abraham had the faith in the presence of him whom believed. Believing that this experience of hearing God's voice and feeling this presence could actually lead to A creation of a new kind of city, built on a totally different kind of foundation. That was the faith of Abraham. That is who is the father of us all. Amen. Somehow God spoke through the dust. Somehow we were able to hear that voice somehow we believe that it is possible. And I think you saw some pictures of it. It's possible that a different kind of city can be built. So um, if you don't mind what I'm going to do, because I really am going back to this, this basic question of what was removed uh, out of the air that I felt in my first encounter. And I would say that this covetousness and this greed is one of the things that is actually removed out of the air in this city. The word word covetousness actually means to be eager to have more, to have what belongs to others. Here's a description. Even if someone needs nothing of what might be saving the life of those he envies, he still desires it. He could care less about what might happen What might help someone else live? If he doesn't have it, then no one should. It's kind of a description of of greed and covetousness. This professor, I think I mentioned it before, uh, Rene Girard, he, he presented this word to describe this type of greed and covetousness. That we find so prevalent in our society, the, the the civilization of the world. He called it mimetic rivalry. Rivalry. And mimetic. I, I'm not a very good mime. I, I actually hit my hand here recently here on the, on the podium. Um, you wouldn't want me to mime. Mimetic. It's 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 miming. It's it's copying something, and it's it's trying to. Um, it's trying to emulate something. And so what, what this professor identified is, though there is this desire for things, almost an obsession for things, possessions, really what's driving people is something a little bit deeper than that. It's something actually that goes beyond just the possession. It's what people are looking for is not necessarily the possession, but the status that that possession that possession grants you. For example, if I were to drive up to this conference in a Porsche, immediately you would have, Ooh, oh, Mr. Bowden, hi, how are you? And I were to step out with a a, a, a tuxedo and a suit and have my pipe and oh, Mr. Bowden, hi, how are you? I didn't. I, I pulled up in a little Ford Ranger, uh, <laughs> base model, but it's a great truck. Um, And so really what people are after is not just the possession, not just the Porsche, not just the particular clothes, but really what they're looking for is that status that the possessions afford you. Um, And this very dynamic, he says, is what... um, I don't have the quote right here. He identifies it as the primary dynamic... Of human civilization. That is what's actually driving people. That's the motive force. Boy, I sure would like the status of that movie star. Or that country music singer. There's something about how everybody. Oh my goodness. It's him. He's here. There's something inside of us that would love that to be us. I'm here in my Porsche. Oh, Mr. Bowden. There's just something inside of us that actually wants to be like a God. And so these these role models that the culture puts out as, ooh, you really need to be like that country music singer. You will do whatever it takes, buy whatever it takes to be like them. And so, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because even this professor is saying, this is actually what shapes the entire civilization. This is what's motivating most people. It obviously drives the fashion industry. There was a documentary in 2001 called Merchants of Cool. Cool. And they identified that teenagers, how many people here are teenagers? I see some hands. Okay. All right. At heart. They they identified that teenagers spend a lot of money. It's not theirs, yes. <laughs> it's yours and mine. How much money do you think teenagers spend a year in this country? 5000 5, Okay, a little higher. A As a whole. A, a, a billion. That's a lot of money. Higher. A little lower. <laughs> 100, 100 uh, close. $150 billion teenagers are spending to be cool. And so there's a whole industry that's been formed realizing, whoa, that's a lot of money that we can shift. And so what we can do is we can determine what's cool and we can determine it every year and change what's cool. And when we change it, guess what? Those kids are going to buy again. Whether it's the shirt, whether it's the pants, whether it's the shoes, whether it's the car, whether it's the phone, whatever it is that will make them cool and feel this, this feeling of status, they'll do it. I tell my kids when I was in high school, there was this show. I, 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 trust me, I, I hadn't come to God yet. I, there was this show about these, these private investigators who were in Miami, Florida. And man, this guy had a Ferrari And uh, he and his buddy, I mean, they solved every crime. They came through in the nick of time. They drove around and they had the most awesome, you know, just super cool outfits on. And they had these shoes, both of them. I can't remember what they're called, like dockers or something, boat shoes. And neither of them wore socks. And so that's great if you live in Miami or Arizona, but I lived in upstate New York. And so, me and my friends wanted to be cool, too. Um, We didn't want to be private investigators, but we wanted to be cool. And so, we wore these boat shoes without socks. And I just remember trudging through the snow, thinking, what am I doing? I'm being cool. And um, so, I'm being very cool. (laughs) Call (laughs) 911. And so there's this, there's this willingness to sacrifice your health, your money, your comfort, to just be cool. And really, if you think about it, what is that teenager wanting to do? Well, he just wants to fit in. He wants to be accepted. In fact, I don't have the research right here, but we are actually hardwired to long for acceptance and belonging. We are hardwired to um, what I would say is find our place somewhere. And so a teenager will emulate, he's actually emulating, idolizing people. And it is a very strong, strong force inside of teenagers. And the world has capitalized on it. And I wish I had the research here, but this is actually, they're finding it's hardwired into youth. And so they are in desperate need of role models. They're in desperate need of somebody to look up to because they're willing to do whatever it takes to be like, in this case, Don Johnson, who the, the movie star, and in my case. But you know what? For us, it just shows that if a young person can take that hardwired need to belong and be accepted and to look up to people and actually turn that towards this community where there are real men of God, where there are real places that are meaningful, that, that could bring meaning into their life, maybe God set them up that way to long for their place in the kingdom of God, to long for their place in the city that's set on a hill. Amen. So you have to keep changing these. You have to keep changing what's cool, what's modern, what's in. And what that does for people is it leaves them with this feeling of nothing is permanent. Nothing is really enduring. Everything changes the fashions, the values, it's all in flux. It's all changing. And so you have this, this mass of young people who feel like they're on sand. That's just, and, and if, uh, I don't have these here, but if you could read about youth in suicide right now, dealing with depression, I wish I had the, the statistics that, that loss of meaning, that loss of stability. And, and part of it is because they are raised in a, in a culture that has this kind of foundation. It's called sand. And if, if the kingdom of God could actually have something that has enduring permanence to it, our young people can feel so secure they can feel so stable. And so I look back at my first experience with what I felt when I first saw the community. Maybe that's what I felt. Maybe I felt for the first time the sense that there's something enduring, that there's something permanent, that life isn't always in flux and changing. There's some things I could actually stand on. There's actually a firm foundation. This, this covetousness, um, and I'll, I won't go too long with this, this covetousness um, is actually identified in the scriptures as a spiritual element. And um, James says, where there's bitter envy and self-seeking, every evil thing is there. This wisdom doesn't come from above. It's earthly, sensual, and demonic. And so the bad news is behind all of these, um, this covetousness, this envy and self-seeking is actually a spiritual force. Paul said that covetousness is idolatry. How could covetousness be idolatry? I could see it being bad. I could see it being where I'm, I want something that somebody else has. But how, how could that be idolatry? It kind of seems like a big leap to identify something as idolatry. Sir? Ultimately, is, isn't it? You're worshiping something other than God. But in the verse that I just shared before, that it's not only earthly and sensual, it's actually demonic. There's actually spiritual forces that are moving and motivating um, this, this feeling of covetousness and greed. And um, if, if I could just read you this one verse real quick in 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God. And so Paul's identifying that in the world, there's many gods and many lords, and it has something to do with these idols. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And so I just raised that those verses there to show that Paul is seeing something here. When there's these dynamics of envy and greed and covetousness, it's not just, I really want something. We're participating in something that goes way beyond that. We're participating in a spiritual element, a dynamic, something that's metaphysical, something that goes beyond just physical earth and material things. Paul wrote to the Colossians, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. What did we say the foundation of the world was again? It was the blood of Abel because of envy and competition. And so the basic principles of the world. Um, and Paul is, is really, he's begging and he's warning that we would not walk according to these principles. And the word there for principles is actually stoicheia. And the word stoicheia is um, a power that exercises rule and authority over and within the world of humanity. It's actually translated as elementary forces, elementary spirits of the universe. And so these basic principles of envy, competition, covetousness, greed are actually part of the basic principles but they are spiritual forces is what Paul is saying in the Greek. John said the whole world is under the control of the evil one amen and i um i think i'm just gonna i'm not going to um, go into well i will real quickly this this spirit this stoicheia the greeks had a name for it this spirit of covetousness greed envy this stoicheia this this principality they called it eros And it was the spirit behind every form of unrestrained desire. Unrestrained desire. Sexual perversion and fantasy. It was the first God created from chaos. And it was seen as the catalyst in creating the world. And so if this spirit in Greek mythology was this spirit emerging out of the primordial abyss out of the chaos and it was coming up to disrupt the order and to create according to its chaos to really disrupt, dissolve and bring people back into that chaos. If you were to contrast that with love that comes down from above, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy spirit that's given to us. This love actually binds us together and lifts us back to God. Where well, this other force is a is a principality that emerges, kind of like a septic tank backing up into the house, causing disruption, breaking up the peace of a home, and pulling it back into its chaos. This is I'm just saying this is Greek mythology, but they're onto something. This spirit, this principality. Is unleashed in our world. Uh, I don't have to, I'll just tell you that it's something like almost 50% of families in in the U.S. have reported that pornography is in their home. 56% of American divorces involve one party having obsessive interest in pornography. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help. 68% of church-going men and 50% of pastors view this garbage regularly. These were compiled from um, Covenant Eyes and I think the Barna Research. It is an epidemic, a pandemic. This spirit has been released, it has come up. From chaos. It is seeping into homes and it's breaking those homes down, disrupting the order and the peace. It is a principality and power. So, what do we do? <laughs> what do you do? Can you control a spirit? Can you put a leash around that spirit once he's been released? We just had the Yellowstone flood. Um, Uh, I'm sure you've seen that on the news. And in our new place where we're building, we have a driveway that is on the river bottom, and then it goes up into where we live. And we wanted to see how far the river would rise uh, during the flooding, and it was getting closer and closer to our new driveway. And if I could have, I would have said, okay, just stop right there. You You can take that out, and you can take that out, but don't take out our new driveway. And this force of water, it's a fluid. <laughs> it, it just ripped through it. And so you don't have, once you release certain forces, they break the banks of the river, they will take whatever is in their path. And there's certain forces that if you take them outside of the, say, the hearth where you're, you're cooking your food, and that fire gets out of the hearth, and it starts going into the kitchen... And you say, okay, everybody, it's fine. We're just going to let the kitchen burn down. That's fine. It'll just stay over there. It doesn't work that way. These forces, once they're released, they take over. They take over. And um, as, as the church, it is our responsibility to bind and to loose. And whatever, whatsoever we bind on earth shall be bound In heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so, part of our responsibility as the city of God is to bind these principalities and powers and to not participate in it at all. And so, God has given us a few things. One, the power over it, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so God calls the people of God to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires so that we are holding back these forces. He has also given us an incredible thing called simplicity. Simplicity is a disposition of heart that regulates our attitudes towards material things. By keeping our lives single minded and centered in God. And so, if we can learn to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires, if we can have an attitude of simplicity where we're not grasping for every material thing and we're not grasping for the status that those material things are trying to afford us, we actually can be participating in holding back the bore tide. Of these spirits that are running uh, as an epidemic, And so what, what I feel like, possibly, what I felt when I first came to the community and felt the absence, maybe one of the things I felt the absence was was this principality and this power, a people committed to simplicity of living, a people committed to crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires, a people who are, who are together committing to a whole different type of value system and said, Oh, we don't want to be like Don Johnson. I don't want the Porsche. I don't want to be the cool movie star. I just want to find my place in the kingdom of God. I just want to find my place in the family of God. We turn that desire that God hardwired us with and we turn it towards the city of God and away from the city of the world. Can I give you an example of, of somebody who made the shift? He's a little guy. Luke 19. This just moved me today. Um, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Amen. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he pursued all those riches. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. You get a sense, this man, he knew what it was like to be under the lordship of this type of operation, don't you? That greed, that competition, that grasping for material goods, trying to increase his stature. And yet somehow, through the smoke, somehow he has this sense that this man is actually my way out of this. I actually, like Abraham, I I don't want to be in this city And I actually hate this foundation. I hate what it's doing to my life. And I hate what it's doing to my family. And I, God, is there a way out of this? And and like I said in the beginning, you pray and you ask God, he will send a way out. He will send a door. And, And for Zacchaeus, Jesus himself was walking by. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. Maybe God had a hand in, in how I met the community. Maybe God knew the longings of my heart and made a way out for a guy like me. Hallelujah. I just feel it's so possible. The people who are trapped, those who are sitting in the, what is it, uh, um, in the valley of the shadow of death have seen a great light. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And, and they, what they have to see is they have to see a city set on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I just want to say, uh, let, the, let the city of God, let it rise above all the other mountains. Amen. Let it be exalted above the hills. Amen. Let many people flow to it. Amen. Let those... Come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. Amen. A whole new way of life. <laughs> whole new foundation. And we will walk in his paths. Amen. He goes on to say, but everyone shall sit under his own vine and under his fig tree. You feel that, that promise of contentment. No need to grasp. No need to fight. No need to strive. God, you provided everything we need for life and godliness. Amen. And godliness with contentment is going to be great gain for us. He will sit and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people shall walk in the name of his own God, gods, many gods and many lords. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.